Sun Tzu, the Chinese strategist, tells us that strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. But tactics without strategy is just noise before defeat. My name's Jim Molan, and welcome to our Noise Before Defeat podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Noise Before Defeat with Senator Jim Molan. I'm your host, Sarah Davidson, and I'll be sitting down with the Senator for this six-part series exploring the depths of securing our great nation. And by sitting down, I mean virtually from two different states. We had hoped to record this in person, but the pandemic has forced a pivot here, as it has for many of you. So I'm sure you'll forgive us any small hints that we've recorded this from our homes. kick us off, I'd like to introduce you to the Senator himself and his fascinating background to give you some context for the discussions you'll be hearing over the next few weeks. Senator, it is a pleasure to be here with you. Welcome to your podcast, Noise Before Defeat. Sarah, hi. It's great to be here. And I say hello to all our listeners. uh, And I thank you for the invitation. So many people at the moment, as we listen to what's going on in our society, are referring to the so-called Chinese curse. May you live in exciting times. (laughs) Now, I don't think it ever had anything to do with the Chinese, but it doesn't matter. These times, Sarah, might be exciting, but they're also very concerning. And for some people, they'll be very frightening. But it's overwhelmingly important that I believe that we should talk about them. Yeah, the first step to addressing many fears or uncertainties is just to address them head on and really get them out in the open with a good chat. Yes, and a chat like this over a longer period allows us to really get into an issue that's important. Life for all of us is busy and some issues are complex and the few minutes that you get on other forms of media often are just not enough. So, Sarah, what I'd like to talk about is national security. National security is not necessarily about defence. Defence is only a small part of national security, but an important part. Mm. National security is about your job, your investment in this country through your work, your life and your family, your right to live the way we've lived in a free and democratic nation since our last real fright during World War II. And it's about the obligation that our generations have to secure this country in the way that it is for all of us. So it's a pretty big topic and it's good to be here. (laughs) A very big topic, but we can't get any further into the juicy stuff without explaining how the idea for Noise Before Defeat came about. As you mentioned, these are incredibly exciting times, but if 2020 has shown us anything, it's that we're also heading towards the most uncertain future for Australia probably since 1945. So can you start, Senator, by giving us a top-level introduction to what the series is about and where you got the idea. I I certainly can. And it's about national security, which is a very confusing term. But national security is what it says, the security of the entire nation. And it all starts with the way the world has changed. And these are new times for Australia and Australia must adjust. We face a number of critical issues and this podcast will address them. The most immediate issue, as we all know, is COVID. Mm. We're working to overcome the health and the economic consequences, and that's bad enough, but we can manage our way out of it, and we're doing that. What COVID has shown us is that we, as a nation, Sarah, have really frightening vulnerabilities to external interference. We're far too dependent on countries that might be hostile to us, and not everyone loves Australians, as some of us think. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I'm definitely a victim of that naive optimism that we're loved by all. I mean, of course we are. <laughs> so if the most immediate issue faced by Australia is COVID, I'd suggest that the most important may be what is happening in our part of the world. Who is the top kid on the block and what that means for us? This is about raw power and how various countries use that power. That's what we mean when we talk about an uncertain strategic environment, which is really politicians speak for the <laughs> threat towards us that we may face in our region. You know, in the 75 years since the end of World War II, and you mentioned World War II, the US, by being the strongest superpower in the world, guaranteed both our freedom and our prosperity. And that's important. This is pretty special. The US did that by guaranteeing stability across our trading partners and across the sea routes that make trading possible. And I'm not saying that the US is perfect and it's got plenty of problems at the moment. Mm. I've worked in the belly of that beast. I know its failures and its strengths. I fought alongside its soldiers in wartime. Like all of us, it's far from perfect, but at least it shares our values and interests, and that's critically important. But are you saying that their position has changed? You mentioned the uncertain strategic environment just before. What do you actually think has changed? Well, two developments have ended this extraordinary situation where we have enjoyed prosperity and security for the last 75 years. First, the United States is not as strong as it used to be compared to other powers since the end of the Cold War in about 1991. 17 years of war in the Middle East, the Obama administration and a general tiredness in the US of being the world's policeman is the reasons. Mm. Uh, this is a critical factor to think about. Everyone thinks that US power is infinite and it is not. The second event that's happened is the rise of other powers and that's really what this podcast is about particularly China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, as well as the continuing presence of Islamic extremism. The US is being challenged, as we say, by these authoritarian regimes who are hostile to liberal democracies because we represent an alternative to their control of their populations and so are a threat to them. We in, in Australia have the luxury of becoming very rich and very secure without, as a society, having to do much of it. So, as I say, now the world has changed. We in Australia must look after ourselves much more than has occurred for decades, especially as regards the possibility of conflict and war. And that's what this podcast series is about. Well, we're definitely not short of material to work with over the next couple of weeks. The world is changing faster than it ever has, and perhaps we are taking our continued prosperity for granted. But it's not like we haven't experienced conflict or war as a country, and I think we fared quite well as a nation historically. So doesn't that put us in a good position to talk about all this? I think it does, uh, and there is an openness in this society which allows us to talk about difficult things. Most Australians would say that the Australian experience of conflict and war for over 100 years has been the Anzac experience. We always come back to that. Mm. But I disagree. Australia's experience of conflict and war has been one of unpreparedness for war. Now, think about that, unpreparedness for war. And it's been overcome at the expense of the Anzacs at the cost of their lives and their freedoms. In past wars, Australia has not prepared until the last minute. World War I and World War II are prime examples. Our military were brave and effective, but as a nation, we were very lucky to have strong friends. Mm. And since then, we've been lucky again to only be involved in what have been called wars of choice, 
Korea, Vietnam, Malaysia, Iraq, Afghanistan, East Timor was a little different. But once again, we were lucky and there was little combat. And Senator, can you just quickly explain that concept a little bit more of wars of choice? Yes. In wars of choice, you get to decide if you go to war, where you go to war, uh, when you go to war, and when what we do once we get to the war and when we come home. That's why we call it wars of choice. In those wars, Sarah, we have never had to commit to actually winning. And that's a critical point. But the future may see Australia facing what we call wars of commitment. In wars of commitment, an enemy has the say about when they use military force. And we have very little choice. But we as a nation must win. Therefore, we must be prepared. That's the real commitment. And we have not faced such a situation for about 75 years. For our soldiers, the battle or the campaign is more important than their lives in a war of commitment. We expect our soldiers to die for the cause. For the nation, there is no other priority in such a war than winning, and all our lives must be put on hold as the nation focuses on winning. Of course, we hope that such a situation never occurs just as we did. We hope that in the 20s and the 30s. We hope the Brits would come to our aid. We hope that the Japanese would not attack. When the Royal Navy was tied up in the North Sea or when our Air Force was in Europe and our Army was in North Africa, a strategy of hope does not work. The only way to face an uncertain future is to prepare. Yeah, it's quite interesting to look back retrospectively and think that just because we coped well, it doesn't mean we couldn't have been better prepared for that situation. But I also think many Australians would think we are preparing and we are taking those measures because we're putting so much money into defence. Do you think that's enough or do you think there are other elements here that we need to consider? Well, there are many elements of the strategy and this is a multifaceted, it must be a multifaceted strategy, a comprehensive strategy across the nation, not just for defence. And I make that point all the time. And we do put lots of money into defence, 30 to $40 billion per year we pay for our defence. But if you think that preparing for wars is expensive, try fighting one. <laughs> the cost of the war in Iraq for the United States was immense and it will go on for years. And that was a small war by comparison with what could happen. When I was the chief of operations for the US in the war, it was costing us $5 billion per month. Spend to prepare so you don't have to fight the wars. Mm. No wonder the US is tired of being the world's policeman. Each year, they spend about $750 billion on defence. Think about that, $750 billion. <laughs> That's extraordinary. And most people think that by funding our current defence, we've guaranteed our future. Mm. We've tried for years to get to 2% of our GDP. That would have been enough to prepare our forces for the kind of wars of choice, but it's not enough to be prepared for the uncertainty of today, for wars that we may have to fight to actually win. What really costs a nation is to be prepared as a nation. We must pay money to be prepared now so we avoid the appalling cost, not just in treasure, but in human lives and destruction. And I know you have some thoughts on that 2% figure, so talk us through that a little bit more. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by that 2% figure. We've decided our defence strategy for years, not by how much we need to spend to make this nation secure, but how much we thought we could afford after everything else was spent. It <laughs> was the figure we came up with. And really, this figure started uh, as a figure that was used by the United States to encourage all NATO countries to spend 2% 
to defend Europe after World War II. Fortunately, our government, the current government, has a real commitment to national security and has started to move that past that 2% figure. So we strove to get to 2%. Governments and people could not see that there was a threat to Australia. So we'd say, haven't we done enough on defence? We want more hospitals and roads and tax cuts. Uh, and the question I have, and I hope that we can get to the bottom of it in this podcast, is why, if 2% of GDP was the standard when the United States dominated the world, why would 2% be enough now when the power of the US is markedly less and we're challenged by four nations and an ideology. And in my view, it, it all comes down to one thing, and that one thing is strategy. Strategy undoubtedly being something you will all hear a lot about over the coming weeks, and of course, which is also part of the podcast's introduction and name, Noise Before Defeat. How did you come up with the name? Well, yeah, thank you. And I, I chose the podcast series title as being Noise Before Defeat because it's part of that very famous quote that you spoke about from the ancient Chinese general. I mean, he was even before Alexander the Great's time, <laughs> uh, a strategist and philosopher as well, who wrote a book called The Art of War. His book was more about the art of avoiding defeat than of how to win tactical battles. He focused very much on the relative value of an overall comprehensive strategy, which is the big plan for a nation or an army compared to tactics, which is the lowest level things that a nation or an army might do, like how it structures its economy or how it prepares to fight wars. And the most obvious recent example of confusion between strategy and tactics is the Vietnam War, mm. where the US won every battle but lost the war because it was politically weak. Of the Germans in World War II, another extraordinary example, who were even at the end of the war were better fighters than anyone, but lost the war through Hitler's errors of strategy and the manufacturing power of the US, which Hitler did not take into account. And the full quote is, strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory, but tactics without strategy is noise before defeat. So there's your noise before defeat. And it, but what it means is if you have the right strategy, you know why you are fighting, but you're weak on how to fight, which is tactics, it's hard and a slow road to victory, but you might still win. So strategy is more important than tactics. But regardless of how good you are at fighting, i.e. tactics, if you fight in the wrong place, with the wrong weapons for the wrong reasons, it's just a lot of noise before defeat. So there's your title. And this reflects my view that the most important thing for Australians to do in these uncertain times is to get our strategy right. It must be a nationwide strategy, not just a military strategy. As I say, it takes a nation to secure a nation. And I think that's an important distinction in all contexts, not getting too focused on the micro details and just ignoring the overall macro strategy of where you want to end up. I think a lot of us just get so busy and, you know, keep ourselves on this productivity hamster wheel, but it's not actually taking us anywhere. And I think it's important at this point to explain just how intimately you do understand those distinctions in the context of national security and the background that you bring to these conversations. So let's start with your 40 years in the military straight out of school. From Duntroon, you then went on to serve in Jakarta, East Timor, Iraq, occupied many esteemed positions, including Commander of the Australian Defence College and Chief of Operations for the new headquarters multinational force in Iraq. 
been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for Distinguished Command and Leadership in Action in Iraq, as well as the Legion of Merit by the US government, and then retired as a Major General in 2008. It is a huge question, like many that I've posed to you today, but take us through those years and tell us how your experiences through that time exposed you to strategies on national security and formed the views that you're sharing with us here. Well, yes, I look back on it and it is an extraordinary life. And I've now retired three times and (laughs) I've failed retirement on every occasion. (laughs) But we're all a product of our background and and my background in the military, 40 years is, is incredible, but it was an extraordinary varied career. And it wasn't just the military. I served all over the world and all over Australia as an infantryman, an aviator, a commander of various units. I was a military diplomat for five years and two postings in our embassy in Indonesia. But I've been out of the military now for 12 years. So this is a, a really a second life. And in that period, I've, I've done a lot of corporate speaking and leadership. I've been an author, a consultant in Australia and in the Middle East. And I believe that that's given me a very, very practical understanding of strategy. A lot of people look at strategy and they look at it from an academic point of view. Well, I don't. I look at it from a very practical point of view because I've seen it succeed and dramatically fail. Mm. And I think, Sarah, that to understand strategy, you must have some understanding of tactics. We were talking before about them concentrating on the micro aspects of life and being very, very busy, but not achieving much. The opposite applies. If we don't have a strategy that acknowledges how the organisations work at the bottom, if our tactical forces are flawed or our manufacturing base cannot support what the government wants it to support, it's national suicide. Mm. It doesn't matter whether it's about military matters, as we were saying before, or business matters or national security matters. The principles really are the same. And over that long career, I had... Uh, no faith at all in our defence white papers, which is what passed for strategy, for at least defence strategy, since the first was published in 1976, because they contained a continual series of military strategies, which at no stage the Australian Defence Force could ever achieve. And after I left the military, I, I wrote a book which was aimed at looking at those issues and using my experience in Iraq, where I ran a war and during that time I ran three Iraqi ministries, the oil ministry, the railways and the electricity in Iraq for a period of times, and to see the importance of illustrating the civil and the military side of any nation, it was invaluable. I wrote the book and it was a multiple bestseller because Australians were desperate to know about modern conflict. And it was published in 2008 and it still sells on Amazon and it's called Running the War in Iraq. It's a a modest title, (laughs) a modest title, but much more than my military career. uh, I'm an Australian. And when you say you are an Australian, there is a incredible culture that lies behind you. I'm a father. Uh, I'm a husband, a grandfather now. I've been a military officer, which has its own ethical base. And I'm a member of the Liberal Party and a very proud conservative in my political views. I've invested in the future of this nation through my family, and I'm concerned for that future. And I think that I have something unique to offer as to how we can sustain that future. Now, of course, I'm a senator in the coalition government, and that's a privileged position. It's an extraordinary experience. It has taken me a long time. I've now been in the Senate for three years, uh, not counting about five months when my party decided to boot me out, but I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) Now, and, and that gives me a great, a great opportunity 
to speak about the things that are important for Australia. And, and I'm driven by, as I said before, seeing the failure of strategy and the success of strategy. And I've seen what failure of strategy is like. We were in the wrong war at the wrong time for the wrong reason with the wrong forces in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. And uh, once you go to war, you really are locked in to see it finish well. You can't go to war. And I'm, I am concerned that we pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan too fast. We then had to go back in and we've now pulled out again from Afghanistan. I've experienced an extraordinarily successful strategy and the implementation of that strategy. And that was in the Liberal Party's policy in 2013 election to stop the boats. Now, no one believed we could stop the boats. But as the co-author with Scott Morrison of the strategy that drove us to stop the boats, it's an appalling situation. And I don't expect people to support the strategy. And I talk about it because it's a, it's a very, very hard strategy. Mm. And I talk about it merely from the point of view of it being a strategy that was successful. So we applied that strategy when no one thought we could do it. When the, the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd governments had failed to achieve it, it was the, they had exactly the same aim as we did, but they failed because they didn't understand management 101 and leadership. I've seen the, 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 the Black Summer fires and I've, uh, I was involved very deeply in them, both as a firefighter and as a, an envoy for the Prime Minister down through the fire areas. Mm. And we've all seen COVID. I, I, I was astonished to see evacuees coming out of the fire areas and I thought to myself, this is the first time I have seen something that looked like refugees in Australia. I've seen refugees in appalling circumstances all over the world. Uh, we've seen the failure of our supply chains and, and uh, during COVID and that indicates the national vulnerabilities. So I guess, Sarah, my contribution to national security was the reason that I persisted in joining politics and why I'm now persisting in politics. And as a politician, we need to be just more than a footnote to history. And I don't know whether people are aware, but I received in the last election 137,000 first preference votes. And I cannot believe the honour that that gives me. And this is the highest first preference personal vote of any politician in Australian political history. And that gives me a deep obligation to work for them and to do everything I can for them. Well, you certainly bring a breadth of experience to your role. Talk to us a bit more about this concept of the unpredictability of our world today and how that serves as a backdrop for your passion for this new role and for this podcast. Well, I think the greatest challenge to all of us is to meet the uncertainty of any future. No one can predict the future with, with great precision, but we can all uh, decide what the characteristics of the future is going to be. Uh, the problem that we have faced over many, many years is that uh, we commonly said Australia faced no national security challenge. We weren't being threatened by anyone mm. and we couldn't foresee, at least for the next 10 years, that we were going to be threatened by anyone. And the series of white papers from 1976 until 2016 had the statement in them that there was no threat to Australia for uh, 10 years. Mm. As a result of that statement, of course, you didn't have to prepare the Australian Defence Force for any threat and we could spend what we wanted to spend on the Defence Force. And it was the Defence Force that went away to war. The nation didn't go to war. We carried the burden of those wars of choice all through that period, from all through the post-war period. 
Now, I spent many, many years in the Defence Force fighting the Defence Force for my view of what the Army and what the Defence Force should look like. I've really given up on that because you can take on every issue that you want. You can take on the issue of strike fighters in the Air Force, of submarines, of armoured vehicles, and fight every battle. But if you get the strategy right at the top, everything else falls out cleverly underneath. Mm. And it, we, we've had inquiry after inquiry into the into the, the, the problems that the Defence Force has faced, and, and all those inquiries stopped at one step below government. And my view is that government is responsible for the strategy. It is up to us in government to solve the problem of uncertainty by coming up with a strategy. We don't have to identify exactly who we're going to fight, but we do have a responsibility for identifying exactly what the characteristics of such a fight might be and saying to ourselves, can we do that? And the next step being stress testing whatever we decide to do. So that's the uncertainty that I think we've faced for a long time. We still face uncertainty, but in 2016, when our defence strategy came out and we decided that no enemy was going to threaten us for 10 years, we didn't say to ourselves, if it takes an enemy 10 years, which was ridiculous, to threaten <laughs> us, why would it be that we in Australia didn't need the same year, 10 years to prepare for such a threat. Yeah, that one doesn't really make sense, does it? But you're also a husband and a father, which we've touched on. Outside of your role in the military and in politics, how does your perspective as a family man impact on the views that you're sharing with us here? Yes, it's very, it's very, very important. And it's become even more important to me when I see my children having children and when I, when I look at my grandchildren. And life has been very busy and sometimes I put life in front of family <laughs> uh, as a, as a father, and I have a bit more time now to look at grandchildren and look at, at what being a father and a grandfather means. And I really think that the first thing that a family gives me personally is the emotional energy to do what I do. With a family, you're investing in your own nation as a father, a husband, a grandfather now, as I say. For them to live in the kind of life that I have been privileged to live in, is it, it, which really is the best time for Australia, we need to be prepared. Other husbands and fathers have made the supreme sacrifice to build this nation. It's now our turn to do so for future Australians, such as my grandchildren. I don't want my life to have been lived in the best time that this nation has ever had or will ever had. We must now make sure that this country keeps going. Mm. We need stability to be prosperous and to be able to give Australians the best and uncertainty works against that. And the threat I guess, towards Australia is the continuing theme. If that's the continuing theme, the threat, the answer is preparedness. And the first step in being prepared is strategy. Look at what the Prime Minister has done recently. He gave us a strategic update, uh, which is a strategy not necessarily for the nation, but a strategy for the military. At the same time, he gave $270 billion, and I'll speak more in detail about this in subsequent uh, podcasts. He gave $270 billion over the next 10 years for the mil for military equipment. It's a great first step. It is a, an extraordinary first step, and it differentiates this government from almost every government which has gone before. And when COVID is beaten, and the economy is up and running, we need a nationwide comprehensive strategy to guarantee our security into the future 
for the benefit of our children. And look what the Minister for Energy has done recently in starting a reserve of liquid fuel to give us the resilience because liquid fuel, our lack of, our lack of resilience in petrol, diesel and aviation turbine fuel, uh, the lack of a, uh, of a reserve of liquid fuel is an enormous deficiency for us. So uh, I look at what the government is doing. We are progressing well, but there is a long, long way to go. Well, I can't wait to get into the finer details in the coming weeks. But before we close off for today, can you just quickly run us through the topics we'll be covering in the next few weeks so everyone knows what to expect? Well, I, I guess we're talking now about an introduction to the six-part series and, and that introduction really is, haven't we done, done enough about security? And the answer is no, but we need to figure out what to do through a strategy. The second podcast in the series looks at future tensions or conflict and addresses the widespread view in Australia that major wars are a thing of the past. They are not, but everything we do must be, must be focused on stopping them by being prepared so we don't have to fight them. The third podcast is on our domestic vulnerabilities, and we've kind of touched on a couple of them already. In that podcast, I'd like to discuss how markets produce prosperity, but not security. Uh, the fourth podcast talks about our international vulnerabilities. Many Australians think that everyone loves us as Australians. We go to Bali and we think everyone loves us. But we as a nation sadly represent a real threat to every authoritarian nation in the world because we stand as a liberal democratic alternative to what they are. The fifth podcast concerns Australia's strengths. If we wished, we could defend ourselves against the most extreme threats. We have just decided not to do so. Uh, we could become, and way we may yet become, and we should become a regional superpower. And finally, uh, I offer the solution. I call the podcast, the last podcast where I offer this solution, I call it, we stress test banks, why not national security? We're a smart country, indeed in many ways, but on security, we take things for granted. We don't stress test the nation in relation to national security. And that's always a requirement. You must know how we will perform under such stress. Well, that wraps our very first episode. I hope it opened your eyes as much as it did mine. If you did enjoy listening along, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and recommend it to a friend. Next week, we'll be back to talk about the nature of modern war, so make sure you tune in to Noise Before Defeat for Episode 2. For further information on the topics we covered today or to learn more about the Senator's plan for a national security strategy, please visit his website, jimmolan.com. <laughs>